Good morning, guys. My name is uh, Steve. I am the lead pastor. Thank you for joining us today. Merry Christmas uh, and Happy Advent, right? Happy Advent. Advent is a word that means coming, and, and uh, I love Advent because it's a time for us to look back in order to look forward. It's a time for us to, re- to remind ourselves of, of Christ, the, the, that Christ came and, and that he's going to come again. And so he has come. He is coming again. Let's, let's do it all together, right? He has come. He is coming again. Praise God. All right. We are in the third week of our Advent series. And um, last week we looked at how the Advent gives us comfort in our loneliness, right? We're a weary world. We're, we're exhausted. We're worn thin. Um, and, uh, and this week, um, we're going to take a look at how the Advent gives us comfort in, in our, our fear. Um, you ever seen the videos of, uh, of, of a street dog? as they're trying to re- rescue it. And maybe you've even had the opportunity to try to rescue it, an animal that was feral or, or uh, lived on the streets. Um, they're, they're really like heart-stirring. And, and I think that's why those videos go viral because it's like so sad and then it's so happy when you finally see the dog washed and happy and playing with the family. But, but in the beginning... Um, uh, the animal responds in a way that really is pitiful. I mean, it's, it just, it stirs your heart to pity. It stirs your heart to sorrow um, because it sees threats everywhere, right? Even in a hand that is reaching out to bless it, even in somebody who is, who is seeking to meet them in their pain and deliver them from it to ultimately bring them into a place of blessing, all they see is threat and they will bite the hand that is trying to save it. Everything in them, in fact, wants to escape the very thing that can help them, right? Every instinct in them, uh, is driven to the point that they will think they are actually saving themselves if they get away from the one who's trying to save them. That they're actually getting blessed by avoiding and getting away from and maybe even harming the one who's trying to bless them. And that's because they have in their hearts a posture of fear. They're afraid of everything. Everything is a threat, right? They see threats everywhere. And honestly, when I look at our culture today, I think that's a pretty good image of what I see. When I look across social media, when I look across um, the landscape of, of American culture, what I see is people gripped by fear. Um, now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying all fear is bad. Right? Some fear is good. There are some things you should be afraid of because fear can actually save you from harm. Fear can actually keep you from doing stupid things, right? A fear of heights is kind of a, a, a helpful thing, right? Uh, uh, so fear can be helpful. Fear can even be a positive motivation. A fear of failure, right? A fear, a fear of not realizing a hoped-for dream can become motivation to work harder and even find strength you didn't know you had in order to accomplish something worthy of accomplishing. So fear can actually be an ally. Fear can actually be a good thing because it protects us, it motivates us, and it strengthens us. But here's the thing I want you to catch. Fear is a really good gesture, but it's a horrible posture. Do you understand the difference? Right? A gesture is something you make in a certain circumstance to a certain set uh, of, of situations, right? Like waving is a really good gesture um, when you see a friend. It's a really horrible posture when you see a serial killer, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, fist bump is, you know, like, like these are really good gestures. They're really horrible postures. Fear is a good gesture, right? If I'm walking along the edge of a precipice, I should feel a certain amount of fear. It helps protect me, right? If I feel no fear, and that's actually happened to me at times when I've been in situations like that, something in the back of my head is, is a little warning sign that says, all right, I'm in actually great, greater danger because I'm not afraid right now. Like I need to be extra careful because I'm, I'm not feeling what I should feel right now, right? 
So it's a good gesture. Horrible posture. Like if I just move into a position of fear, I'm afraid of everything. I'm, I'm, I'm continually looking for threats. I expect that everything around me will be threatening. I'm constantly looking for the conspiracy that is going to destroy everything. I'm constantly looking for the enemy who's going to pop up out of the bushes and, and woo, there it is, and everything's going to get ruined. I'm, I'm constantly looking for the betrayal. I'm constantly looking for, for um, uh, the things to go wrong, right? And, and that's, when, that's when it really gets toxic. And, and, and as a culture, we've gone there, right? We have all the normal fears, Right? The fears of, of losing our health, of losing the safety of a loved one, of, of um, not having certain blessings realized, right? Those are normal fears that we have to process through life. But we have right now an exaggerated fear, like a crazy amount of fear associated with political partisanship. We're just terrified the other guy's going to get elected and what it's going to mean, right? We're just terrified that that team's going to win. And if that team wins, uh, you know, Satan's going to take over the world and, and God's going to be dethroned, right? That, that's almost the level of, of, of rhetoric involved in this thing, right? Um, we're, we're terrified of the pandemic, right? We're terrified we're going to get it right or we're going to get it wrong. We're terrified that the vaccine is um, from the devil or we're terrified that the vaccine is not going to work, right? We're terrified of, of the, the next variant, uh, you know, the one that's going to find the back door on the vaccine and we're going to have to go right back to the starting board, right? We're terrified. This, we have fear all around us. We have economic fear, right? We're, we're in, uh, I just read this week, um, the worst stage of inflation in a generation, Right? So, so we're seeing a rising in consumer costs that is reducing the amount of money we have. Um, and, and, and along with that is the economic instability of a market that's bouncing all over the place based on, on the daily news, right? Uh, and the state of a pandemic. So we have these, these extra pressures that, that I believe, um, magnify our fear. And of course, then you have mass media that, that just megaphones it, right? Um, and the power of propaganda. And you're like, Steve, propaganda? Come on, man. We live in America. We don't live in North Korea. We don't live in China. Propaganda? Yes, propaganda. It's all around you, right? Propaganda. Uh, propaganda, very simply, is weaponized information, right? It's when people use information not to communicate something that is true or to give you information that's helpful, but to manipulate you into thinking or feeling certain things, right? Weaponized information. The goal is to get you to do something, not just learn something. So I want you to vote a certain way. I want you to feel a certain way. Maybe I just want you to tune in longer, right? Believe it or not, most of our news organizations are driven by profit. They are profit-driven corporations. And even the highly partisan ones, the ones that are totally right or totally left, they're in business for money, right? They're not driven by ideological concerns. They harness ideological concerns in order to anchor a listening or watching base in order to make money. That's propaganda. It's weaponized information that is designed to manipulate us and they profit off of fear because it leaves us continually asking, what if? Those are the two words of fear. What if? What if? And you can fill in the blank. There's a thousand ways to fill it in and they'll fill it in and they'll help you fill it in. You have your own ways because of your, your own natural fears, but they're going to give you a bunch of new ones too. What if? What if? What if? And when you're continually asking what if, you will be gripped by fear. Now, ironically, that's exactly where the enemy wants us spiritually. The enemy wants us in a posture of fear on the back on our heels, you know what I'm saying? Like, like always afraid, always cautious, always kind of off balance so that when those opportunities come to move through a door and say, yes, we don't go. 
because we're afraid of what will happen. We're, we're always second-guessing. We're always fearful. Instead of moving forward boldly and joyfully because of what, what is, because of the work of Christ, because Jesus came and died and rose again, because, because that we have a God who is recreating the broken creation, because we have a God who's telling a story of redemption and restoration, instead of moving forward and boldly and joyfully because of what is, we pull back and we shrivel up because of the fear of what if. The only way we can break free of the fear of what if is if we become founded and grounded and moving forward in the faith of what is. So let's take a look at our passage this morning. Let's look at John. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, we're going over to page 886. Uh, if you have an app, go ahead and open up your app and go to the Gospel of John chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read this for us this morning. John chapter 1, first of all, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Drop down to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I read recently that kind of there's a big phenomenon right now of people re-watching. Now, it happens all the time, but I, I guess it's on the rise. People are re-watching Netflix series. I, I, not surprising, I know. Uh, some people do this anyway. I don't. Like, like, fascinating series. That's great. I already know what happens. I'm done, right? We're finding there's an increased level of people re-watching Netflix series. Some people have done this all along, right? Lauren loves um, certain movies. And there are certain movies, I think she's probably watched them a thousand times. Like, like I don't, you know, I'll watch them with her because I like being with her. But like the movie, like I get it. Like I know exactly what they're going to say. And I know when they're going to say it. But that's exactly why people are doing this. What they've discovered is that people are finding comfort in re-watching things they've already watched. There's no guessing what's going to happen. There's no uncertainty about how it's going to turn out. There's no stress. There's no, and, and if it's a story they like, it's a little bit like putting on a weighted blanket. If you ever had one of those, I hate them. Um, I just feel trapped, but, but you know, for some people that's really comforting, right? That sense of a weighted blanket, it just makes you feel safe and secure and warm. Rewatching this entertainment is a way of just like unplugging. It has a way of re, you know, allowing the brain to relax for a little while. And just not be in, like you're, 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 in, you're engaged, you're enjoying it, but you have no anxiety, you have no stress. And, and so it's a source of, of comfort, right? Lauren does this thing when we watch, so she doesn't like the kind of movies I like. I, I like suspenseful, I like surprising, I like dark, um, I, there's, I like, uh, I like a lot, you know, and so, uh, and I like to be surprised, even if it's a bad surprise. I like deep, dark, moody movies. I don't know, I'm weird, I'm, like, like, The Departed, I can go relax to that. Um, but, um, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, but, 
Lauren doesn't like my movies, right? I'll watch her movies with her, but she doesn't watch mine with me. So every once in a while, though, there's one that we'll find that kind of fits in the middle, and, and she can watch it with me. She'll actually find out what the end of the movie is before we watch it. It drives me nuts. No, it really doesn't. I would never do that. I get why she does it, because that allows her to watch without, without anxiety. Like, even if it's a bad ending, she knows it's coming. So she doesn't have to sit there the whole time wondering, oh, is this thing going to happen? Is this thing? It's like, no, I know it's going to happen. I just don't know exactly how. You know what I'm saying? That allows something in her to kind of relax. And, and here's the thing. I really do believe that if we know the end of the story, it allows us to relax in the middle of it, right? And in some ways, that's what John is doing in John chapter 1. John is writing his gospel after Jesus has already died and risen again. I mean, it's good for us to remind ourselves of that. We go to the beginning of John 1 where he's talking about the beginning of Jesus' life, but he's writing it from the perspective of one who knows Jesus' life. He knows that he's going to be rejected. He knows that he's going to ultimately be handed over to be crucified, that he's going to be abandoned by his disciples, that the religious and the political leaders of his day are all going to band together to destroy him and to silence him because they see him as such a threat and that ultimately, even in death, he's going to be victorious that he ultimately will rise again, right? All of that is right here in John chapter 1, right? He's a v- revealing the end of the story right here at the start, right? So in, in John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Man, he takes us all the way to the beginning, right? I don't know if you noticed this, but there's actually an echo here of Genesis 1. John is, is poetically and playfully setting up a comparison, right? He says, in the very, very beginning, when everything was made, it was all made through the Word. It was all made through Jesus, and there wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made without Him, right? So, so Genesis 1, He was there, and that Creator of all things is now going to become part of His creation, Right? And we see this even linguistically. I want to put the verses up behind me just so we can see it. And you can see the themes that are developed, right? So this is Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day, right? So John draws on this passage poetically, showing us that the birth of Christ is the birth of a new creation. The same God who created the world is now stepping into the world to recreate it, right? When he created the world, it was good. Right? He created this incredible place, and then he created us to bear his image and to be stewards of his creation. And at the end, he creates for six days, and on the seventh day he rests, and then he looks around, and at the end of every day he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And on the seventh day he looks around and he goes, behold, it is very good. Then you get to Genesis 3 and everything goes bad, right? Because the stewards of creation rebel against the God who made them stewards. They don't want to be created in the image of God, they want to be like God. They don't want to be dependent on God. They want to compete with God. They want to be little gods. They don't want to center their lives on God and his glory. They want to fight for their own glory. They don't want to rely on him for their security. They want to define their own security. They don't want him to define how they're supposed to pursue pleasure. They want to define their own pleasures. And so they seek to set up a way of pursuing life apart from the God of life. 
right? So in Genesis 3, mankind rebels against God and they break creation. As the stewards of creation, they plunge not only themselves, but the entire created order into the vanity, the uselessness of, of ultimately trying to pursue life apart from the God who gives it, right? Humans hijacked creation and ruined it with sin. But God, right? But God, had God checked out at that point and left us, we would have been helpless and hopeless because when we rebelled against God, it wasn't just creation that got ruined, it was us, right? We got broken. We had the inability to fix what we had broken. We were stuck in our brokenness, stuck in our sin, unable to rescue ourselves. No matter how hard we pulled on our bootstraps, we would never leave the earth, right? You couldn't fix your own problems. This was not a matter of self-help, positive thinking, or self-control and self-will. You could not. You were on a treadmill, and no matter how fast you went, you didn't go any further, right? You were stuck, helpless, and hopeless. But the God of creation didn't desert us there. He entered into creation. And mind-blowingly, he didn't just enter into creation. He did it by becoming one of his creatures. The God who spoke all things into existence spoke a word himself into existence as a man. The word spoken created all things. The word then became incarnate in those things. He became flesh. The creator became one of his creatures. And he was born into this world to reclaim it, to redeem it, and to restore it. In Genesis 1, there is this division of light, especially in those early verses where God speaks light into existence. He utters that word, light comes into existence, and we see the division of light and darkness. We see the very first day um, as light and darkness are are separated. And in Genesis 1, light and dark are, are um, I can't call them physical things. I guess I can. Light is particles, right? So it's a physical thing. A um, little physics here. Um, but But it's a physical thing, right? In John 1, John takes the idea of light and darkness, but here he's, he's talking about it in its metaphorical meanings, right? He's, he's using this imagery not to talk about actual physical light and darkness, but to talk about light and darkness as forces that are in combat, that are in, 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 at odds in the existing creation, right? Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? So not physical light. He didn't walk around shining, um, but metaphorical light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So God spoke light into existence in Genesis 1, and, and the light dispelled the darkness, right? Because darkness is simply the absence of light. Anytime you have light, it dispels the darkness. The darkness is, it can't overcome it, right? Now, in a, in a physical world, in, in, the, in the realm of physics, or whatever realm that is, um, the light, the darkness doesn't fight the light. You know what I'm saying? It simply is the absence of light. But in John's world, there is a, a, a moral motivation. There is a, a um, malignant movement. This, the, the, the darkness is, is angry. The darkness is fighting for control. The darkness hates the light. But the darkness, just like when God created light in Genesis 1, the darkness is powerless in the face of light. When the light shines, when the energy of God's glory shines, the darkness is dispelled. It has no power, right? And so in John, when God spoke, his word became flesh and dwelt among us, and his life was the light of men. Let's talk a little bit about that life. 
Um, so in Genesis 3, we unleashed death into the created order. Now, when you think about death, don't think about the cessation of being. When, someone's di- when someone dies, they don't cease to exist, right? Death is separation. That's biblically how we see it. So, so when someone dies, their, their immaterial part is separated from their physical body, right? Um, so, so we can say death is the separation of the soul from the body. That's not completely accurate, but that's a handy way of putting it, right? In Genesis 3, when mankind rebelled against God, they unleashed death. And, and the way they did that is, is humanity was now separated from God. Instead of freely being able to enter his presence in, in happiness and holiness, they now could no longer enter the presence of God because of their rebellion, because of their sin. Um, his pure presence would consume and destroy them because they were no longer pure. So there was a separation between them and God. So death is, is separation, the separation between us and God, the separation of the soul from the body. And, and then in Genesis 3, it plays out even further, right? We see the separation in relationship, where um, Adam and Eve, who were meant to live in perfect community, now lived in competition, right? They were now at odds with one another. Instead of, instead of living with each other and for one another, now, they now lived in competition with one another. Creation itself rose up against them, right? Instead of the, the creation responding to their hand with, with, with joyful submission, we now see the the creation itself rising up with thorns and thistles to fight against its steward. Those are all manifestations of death. Those are all manifestations of separation of what we unleashed in Genesis 3. When it says, so you with me? Yeah? All right. So when John says, in him was life, what he's saying is that Jesus was born fixed where we're broken. He was born connected to God in a way we were not. He was intimately, uniquely, completely reliant on God. There was no separation between him and God. He was born completely at peace with other people. He didn't live in competition with others, even if they hated him. He didn't have to defeat them in order for his well-being, his significance, or his security. He could love others even as he loved himself. Like he could actually say that he loved himself. Unlike us, we struggle with, with a selfish, self-centered, self-glorying kind of love. He had a pure self-love that allowed him to simply acknowledge his own worth and then use that worth in love and service to others. He was alive as humans were intended to be alive. He was what you wish you were. Do you get that? Like he experienced every day in the way you wish you could experience every day. Like, like, like life was full of vitality and excitement and hope. And, and, and every day was this joyful interchange between he and, and his, his, his God. And in some ways his creator because he became part of his creation. And, and, and he, he, he had complete solidarity even with people who were broken around him. He was completely at peace with himself. He was completely at peace with God. He was completely lit up with the mission of love. He had life like you and I could only wish we had it. And we do every day we ache for it. We ache that we could be alive like he was. We ache that we could have that life. And that life was the light of men. There was something about Jesus that drew people to him. And repelled others. Because light has a way of giving life to those that are hungry for it. 
and burning those who despise it. There are going to be those like a flower. When the sun comes out, it turns its, its, its face to absorb the light. There are going to be those because of their humility want to respond to that grace and receive it. And there are going to be those that want to crawl into the dark corners because the light actually threatens what they've built in the darkness. In him was life. And the life was the light of, of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Um, Paul, uh, John here is intentionally ambiguous in a way that our Bible can't show you. He used a word here, a Greek word for overcome, katalambano, that actually has two meanings. And I think it's intentional, completely intended it to have both meanings, but we can't translate it in both ways. So translations have to make a choice. One word means, one way it means to overcome. The darkness could not overcome the light, couldn't win, couldn't defeat, right? Um, and, and that's true. The darkness, when, the, when, when Jesus came and, and he was alive in ways that, that this broken world hated, the way our enemy hates, the way even we in our, in our rebellion against God hates, couldn't overcome it, couldn't defeat it. In the same way darkness can't, can't overcome light, the moral um, rebellion against God could not stand in the face of the beauty of one completely alive in God, right? But the word also has another meaning. Catalambano also means to understand, to grasp, to comprehend. And that also is true. The darkness simply didn't understand him. Like, like the world doesn't get Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like that doesn't make any sense. In a world of limited resources where your ability to get the fullness of life is dependent on your ability to get more and keep, right? Keep what you have and get more. That's, that's the essence of, of how you're supposed to get the fullness of life. Get more money and keep it. Get more prestige and keep it. Get more respect and keep it. Get more vacation and keep it, right? That's the way you're supposed to get the fullness of life. Here you get a guy who's showing up and he's giving everything away. He's like totally, he like, he gives respect to people who don't res- deserve respect. He's, he's, he's out there like hanging out with, with um, people who had absolutely no social uh, capital, right? So he's hanging out with the losers. He's hanging out with the rejects. He's hanging out with the people that is not popular to be seen with. And not only that, he's hanging out with the people who would lower his reputation. And he's rejecting the people who would raise it. Like they're showing up saying like, hey, don't you want to hang out with us? We're kind of important. And if you hang out with us, people will see you as important too. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. Right? Like, like he doesn't play the game. They don't get it. Like to the point where, where he was exposing the structures of their darkness in such a way he was such a threat, they had to kill him. The political and the religious leaders of this world conspired together in a way they, they, they hated each other. But they found a common enemy here. And they conspired together to destroy him, to kill him, to silence him. But they don't get it. Because they can't even do that. When they try to kill him, their very attempt to kill him becomes his solution to release us from death. Like, like the cross and the resurrection, what, that wasn't God's plan B. He wasn't like God didn't, Jesus, Jesus didn't show up saying, man, I hope they like me. I hope that, you know, I kind of come to my own and maybe they'll receive me. 
Like he knew they weren't going to receive him. He knew what he was walking into because he was on a mission to redeem and restore. And that mission was going to require him to go to the cross, to die, and to rise again. He, he was under no illusion of what he was here to do. But the darkness didn't get it. They thought they had won by silencing his voice. They thought they had won by putting him to death. And when he rose from the dead, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> they just freaked out. What do you do with that? Right? Holy cow, we gave it our best and it wasn't good enough. The darkness doesn't get it. The darkness doesn't understand the power of love. The darkness understands the power of greed. The darkness understands the power of death. The darkness understands the power of fear. The darkness understands the power of weaponized information. You know what the darkness doesn't understand? Love. And love has the power to undermine all the structures that death builds. God's love. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness did not understand it. There was nothing that the darkness could do. Everything Jesus did didn't make sense to them. To a broken, rebellious, selfish world, it didn't make any sense at all. There was nothing this broken world could do about it. He was life. And then he came intentionally to give his life to anyone who would receive him by believing in him, right? Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, right? He came to his own, his own didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, right? Jesus was the agent through which everything was made, right? When we read Genesis 1, Jesus was there. He was, he was the creative force through which everything that was made was made, right? And then he took on flesh that he might become the agent through which everything could be redeemed or remade, right? The, that, that mankind could be recreated. And that work of redemption came at a terrible cost. The light of the world would have to be swallowed by darkness, the life would have to die, right? Not just any life, but the life of the world. The perfect man would have to die a sinner's death as our substitute in order to be our Savior. What Paul explained in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When he went to the cross, he did it as a hero to become our substitute. He became the embodiment of our rebellion against God. He took the penalty of our, of our cosmic treason. He, he, he died under the weight of our death. Because having died by our death, he could kill that death and invite us into his life. The darkness could not understand this. The darkness could not defeat this. He died, but in dying, he killed death. Victorious, he rose, right? In dying, he died our death. And in rising, he invites us into his resurrection. He took our place in judgment. So we could stand with him and his blessing. So that he could not just recreate the world. 
but he could recreate humanity. Now no longer in the likeness of Adam, but now in the likeness of the last Adam, Christ himself. When we believe in him, we're covered in his active obedience. We're covered in his righteousness. We are, we are in the process of being molded into his image so that he can not only recreate the world, but populate it with a redeemed humanity that are fully alive, like he is alive. Hmm. All right. How does this address our fear? <laughs> um, so fear. We kind of like fear. I mean, again, we, we talked about it. We like scary movies. We like the jump scares. Sometimes, ooh, that's... And, until it becomes real, right? When fear becomes real, we hate it. When we actually feel vulnerable, when we actually feel exposed, when we actually feel in danger, right? It's like the storm coming in. It's like, oh, this is kind of exciting. Oh, man, there's an actual tornado on the ground. This isn't exciting anymore. Like, we're going to go to the basement, and, and I'm actually going to start wondering, holy cow, do we have water? Do we, do we, you know, like, like the supplies, are they still there? Um, man, fear, fear. Here's the thing though. Fear doesn't just feel bad. It does feel bad. We hate to feel it. It doesn't just feel bad. It is bad. And, and, and the enemy wants you to stay in a posture of fear. Instead of following Jesus in, in the joyful adventure of love, um, the enemy. And honestly, we, when we're aligned with him, will instead settle for imaginary safety in withdrawal and self-protection. So how do we deal with the fear that threatens to cripple us? How do we deal with the fear that causes us to be back on our heels all the time, pulling back instead of pushing forward, instead of um, uh, living in anticipation, as Tish Warren Harrison likes to describe it, of God's good? We're living in fear on our heels, afraid of what could be taken from us, what could hurt us, what could be done to us. How do we, how do we deal with the fear that threatens to cripple us? Well, we need to grow in our faith of what is instead of being enslaved to the fear of what if. I'm going to give you three ways to do that. First, you need to every single day be grounding yourself in the comfort and the courage of your father's love. Like you need to have liturgies, daily personal liturgies that ground you in God's love for you, remind you of God's love for you, reawaken your responding love to God's love, right? Take a look at this verse. This is 1 John 4. Now this is, John wrote this much later than the gospel. He's an old man at this point and he's speaking to his children uh, in a very fatherly voice, right? And he's, he's telling his kids, man, his spiritual children, us, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. We love because he first loved us. Listen, fear comes from feeling alone. Fear comes from feeling exposed in ways we don't like to be exposed, vulnerable in ways we don't like to be vulnerable, powerless to protect ourselves or those that we love. That's when fear really kicks in, right? Listen, the presence of love drives out fear. Um... It's pretty popular today for people to say things like, uh, don't, live by, don't live by fear, live by faith. Right? I'm, I'm not going to be controlled by fear. I'm going to be bold in faith, as if fear and faith were two opposing forces. First of all, I find the people that say those things often are some of the most fearful people when you really get under the skin. They're just trying to find ways to defend their defensiveness. But second of all, they misunderstand a basic dynamic. 
Fear and faith aren't opposites. In fact, often it is in times of fear that our faith grows the most. Fear and faith can coexist. And in fact, often have to. When God calls us to step forward into things that are unknown, to take risks in a way that, that don't feel safe, to, 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 to kind of put it on the line a little bit, to be vulnerable in ways we don't want to be vulnerable, exposed in ways we don't want to be exposed, to, to, to give more than we want to give or share more than we want to share, that, that's going to cause fear. That's exactly the fear actually becomes the servant of the faith. Fear and faith are not enemies. But I will tell you this, fear cannot coexist with love. Those are the opposites. Love drives out fear. And it is in the context of love that we grow our faith in the face of fear. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. Like, like um, if you're walking in an exposed, dangerous area, do you want to do it alone or do you want to do it with someone that you love and trust? Simply having someone near you that you love, know, and trust changes your experience of the entire environment. Right? When I went to, went overseas into third world country and type environments where, um, I mean, it was like the old west except Central Asian style, right? Where guns are, you know, and, and no rules and, I mean, crazy. Not a place I would want to be alone. Didn't speak the language, felt completely exposed, didn't like it. But I'm there with people that I love and know and trust. And I'm like, woo, all right, I'll relax and actually enjoy this. Look at that guy. He's got an AK-47. Hey, stopping our car. Hey, sticking the gun in the car. This is really interesting, right? Like, like what, what would have been terrifying becomes a bit of an adventure. You're like, Steve, that, yeah, all right. Um, but are you catching what I'm saying? Like, like love has a way of propelling us to do things and overcome our fear, right? It, it causes us to do stupid things. And I know I'm getting a little bit of trouble here, but just like get married, right? Like, you're like, no, it's a beautiful thing. I know. Have you ever been married? Like, it's hard. You, you have to, like, invite someone in. You have to give up certain autonomy. You have to give up certain rights. You, you, you give up your ability to have certain freedoms. You, you give up, like, like um, you know, the things that you thought were yours. No, you know, you're sharing them, right? I mean, it's, it can be hard. And, it, and you're not guaranteed that it's going to turn out great. And you know that at the outset. And sometimes it doesn't. Every time you have a kid, holy cow, how stupid is that? Right? Kids are the greatest blessing on the face of the earth, man. They explode your heart. They're so beautiful and gorgeous and, 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 and they will kill you. <laughs> right? They will sap everything out of you. Right? And they will make you fear in ways you didn't know you could fear. Even a guy like me who's not like I, like fear is not my thing. It doesn't mean I'm not afraid, and it doesn't mean I'm not driven by fear, but, but that's not my besetting. But my kids have awakened fears in me I didn't know I had. For them, for me, if I were to, you know what I'm saying? Like, like what if I wasn't around? Like, all love. Love drives out fear. You'll do things that don't make sense. Um, you'll do things that make sense in the context of love when you realize that what you, want to, what, you, what you stand to gain is so much greater than what you stand to lose. Love. It helps you orient yourself to what is truly valuable. It helps you orient yourself to what is, what is genuinely at risk because you can be perfectly safe and totally alone and you're totally impoverished. You're not safe. You're dying. Love. We need to foster a continual awareness of God's love for us 
and His presence with us because as we respond to the love of God, it counteracts the natural fear we have as, as limited created beings. Let me show you this, Romans 8, 15. Uh, Romans 8, 15, it says this, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, right? So as a believer, when you received Christ by believing in him, the Holy Spirit came in and dwelt in you, okay? So so the spirit of God actually, so so part of the benefit of believing in Jesus is not only are you covered in the righteousness of Jesus, but you're actually indwelt by, by God himself. You have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So God himself inhabits us and he's continually telling us the same thing. You're loved. The, 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 the Spirit is continually whispering to your soul. You're adopted. You're not a slave. You're a, you're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're not an inconvenience. You're not a disappointment. You're not on the outside. You're not sitting at the kid's table. You are invited to the table of grace to feast with, with your Abba Father. Like, nobody gets to call God Abba unless you're actually his kid. That's way too familiar. Abba was the, the ancient Hebrew word of saying daddy. It speaks of, of, of childlike intimacy. And the Spirit is the one leading us to say it. It's not irreverent when we come to the creator of the universe and say to him, Abba, Father, because it's the Spirit of God giving us the Spirit to say it. Because we have been loved, we learn how to respond in love. Because He has loved us, we are freed to love. Listen, this isn't just an exercise in creative imagination. It is the Spirit Himself whispering the reality, the continual reality of what is. Not what could be. Not what should be. What is. You are a child of God, adopted into the family of God, delighted in by God, secure in the love of God. Covered in the righteousness of God. Being delivered into the kingdom of God. That is what is. Because Jesus died and rose again. And because you have received the blessing by believing in the Son of God. You are loved. You are safe. You are adopted. You are, he says, mine. Listen, we have to learn how to listen to that whisper. And that's the challenge. Because the Spirit whispers. And, 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 and when we're listening to the foghorn of our culture, we're listening to the foghorn of media, and we're listening to the foghorn of political partisanship, we drown out the whispers of the Spirit. He doesn't stop, but we stop hearing it. We don't grow distant from, from, from the truth. We grow distant from the experience of the truth. We're not less secure, but we feel less secure because we've stopped listening to the voice of security. Listen, y'all, we, we need to develop personal liturgies, personal habits that every single day, moment by moment, renew our experience of the love of God. Like, I'm, I'm not a structure guy. That's not my thing. I'm really unstructured. Uh, I'm very adaptable, which is a great strength and a horrible weakness. Um, and so I've learned a lot from Lauren in this area because Lauren is a structure person. And every single morning when she wakes up, the first thing she does she opens up the ESV app on her phone and she listens to it as it reads to her the Psalms or the Gospels. That's how she starts her day. Reminding herself of who God is and who she is in God. Right? 
Me, I'm just prone to get right up and like, what's the first thing I need to do today? What's the, am I going to exercise? Am I going to go do some work? Am I going to, what's the problem I need to solve? What's the, you know what I'm saying? Or I wake up and I'm like, hey, what's happening on social media? And, and oh man, that makes me really mad. And, and like, like she attunes herself to the whisper of the spirit. Y'all, we need to do that. We need to find comfort and courage in the father's love, which means we need to tune ourselves to the spirit who's whispering that love. To us, we also need to find courage and comfort in the Father's story, right? Revelation one seventeen and eighteen. Let me share this verse as well. Um, this is John at the end of his life. He's an old man now on the Isle of Patmos. He has been exiled, and uh, and as an old man, um, Jesus comes to him. Right? He gets a revelation from God, and um, uh, and when I saw him, he says, and that he's speaking of of Jesus revealing himself to him. I fell at his feet as though dead. That's fear, <laughs> and that's actually a very common response biblically when people see a revelation from God. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Right? John, many, many years later, after writing the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, now he's given this great revelation that turns into the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible, right? And he's in exile, and, and, and Jesus shows up to him, and he's just struck with fear. And Jesus puts his right hand on his shoulder. He says, hey, man, I'm the first and the last. Like, you know the beginning that you wrote about in the Gospel of John? I want to remind you I was there. Right? And I'm getting ready to show you what's going to happen at the end. And I'm already there. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who came to this world, who was alive, who died, and who rose again. I now have the keys of death and of Hades. I know the end of the story, buddy. And it's really, really good. Listen, y'all, when I am in a moment of turmoil, when I am in a moment of insecurity, when I am in a moment of unwanted vulnerability and exposure, I want that hand on my shoulder. I want that comfort. I want Him to, to come and lay that hand on my shoulder and say to me, I've got you. Like, I know right now the story doesn't seem very good. I know right now things aren't going the way you wanted them to go. I know right now you're facing some things that are really hard. But I'm with you. And I haven't abandoned you. And I know how it turns out. Because remember, my name is Yahweh. A Hebrew word that means I am the timeless one, the ever-present one. You realize time is something God created for us, right? Like this whole flowing of minutes thing, that's not his deal, that's ours. He exists outside of time. He is right now at the creation. He is right now at the final restoration. He is before creation and he is an eternity future. All things are present to God. He is the eternal I am. He is the first and the last who broke into time to redeem time. And yeah, you're having a bad chapter in the story, but so did he. And that's not the last chapter. And yeah, things aren't turning out the way you wanted them to turn out, but guess what? You can trust the God who's telling a greater story for your life than you would tell for yourself. Don't be afraid.
Because He's got you. And finally, if we're really going to be able to combat fear, we need to do it in community. Let me show you one more verse. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the central command here is don't neglect to meet together, right? He's talking to the church and the church was tempted to stop gathering. But what I love here is the contrast. He's not contrasting not meeting together with meeting together. He's, meet, he's contrasting not encouraging others and not considering how to stir them up to love and good works with not meeting together. Listen, the writer of Hebrews is, is, is basically saying that, that it's not simply a neglect of gathering, it's a neglect of engaging that's the problem. Some people cut themselves off by community by not showing up physically. Some people cut themselves off by community by not showing up vulnerably. There are some people who go through the motions of community without actually engaging community. And they are not going to be protected from their fear because it's their fear that's keeping them from engaging. They're giving themselves over to fear instead of learning how to overcome their fear in faith. We've had some people leave the church at different times, different seasons, and, and, and often the story is very similar, right? You go to the community, their community group, and you're like, hey, what happened? What was going on in the background? What were they sharing with you? And they're like, I don't know. They never talked to us about it. They never shared it with us. You know why? Because they were in community, but they weren't in community. They were around people, but they were isolated and they weren't processing their fear. They weren't processing their hurts. They weren't processing their, their growing bitterness or, 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 or difficulties. They, they became isolated even though they were surrounded by people and so they became vulnerable in their fear. Listen, fear will cause you to pull back and self-protect so that even if you are around people, you will no longer be in community. And if that happens, I'll tell you what, you're going to hate the people you're around. It's not going to be long before you actually despise the people you're around because what you crave are not people, but community. And you'll start resenting the people because they're not feeding that deeper need. You'll get isolated, surrounded by people, or worse, you'll actually create a subgroup of people within the community that share your fear. And pretty soon, you're going to have this little group of people that all have the same convictions and the same fears as you. And you feel safe being vulnerable with them because they're not going to challenge you. They're not going to question you. They're not going to push you in ways that help you grow. And that's really, really unhealthy for you and for the entire group because people outside of that circle feel it. And they realize, I'm outside that circle. I don't know why. And they're inviting you into vulnerability, but you're not going there. And that becomes a, a little kind of uh, pocket where, where really, really bad things incubate. Because fear is the breeding ground of many bad things. None of them are good. Listen, if you're going to grow your faith so that you are able to engage fear, overcome fear, and be bold in love, you're going to have to do it in community. Instead of self-protecting and isolating yourself in fear from others who think differently than you, who have different convictions from you, who have different political ideation than you, who, 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 who have different ways of looking at life than you, you're actually going to have to break free from your fear and learn how to push into the diverse community of faith and learn how to be vulnerable. Because here's the thing, you're not entrusting yourself to the people in community, you're entrusting yourself to the Spirit over the community of people. You realize that, right? You're not asking those people to do for you 
what you can't do for yourself. You're asking the Spirit to do in you what you can't do for yourself. Because it's God at work in community that transforms us. Listen, there are times when people in community aren't going to be safe. But the God over the community is. And so you can still be vulnerable. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. I know. Light doesn't make any sense, does it? That kind of generous living, that kind of love-motivated living, that kind of self-giving vulnerability doesn't make any sense at all to the world. But it makes perfect sense when you understand that that's how God is at work to transform you and through you to enrich the entire community so that we might become a transformational community of grace. This is Christ's body. And you don't get to look at the liver and say, I don't need you. Maybe you're the liver. I don't know. We need the body. We need all the members of the body. And we need to be humble enough to recognize that that as much as it's hard for us, sometimes we're hard for others. And as much as we need the grace of God to deal with some people, they need the grace of God to deal with us. And praise God, He's at work in all of it. We're His people, and He's at work in the community of Christ to transform us and set us free into the boldness of faith and the freedom of love. Listen, if we're going to break free from the fear of what if... We need to be rooted in the reality of what is based on Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and the new creation. All right, I'm going to close this in our prayer. Um, We're going to share communion. We're going to sing, and we're going to baptize some people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, you are the God over the story, that you are the God over the suffering, you are the God over the brokenness, and, and you are the God who broke into this broken world that you might redeem it and restore it. That you spoke the world that created it, and you became the word who could live in it, that you might redeem it from the inside out, that you might uh, redeem for yourself a new humanity, not defined by the rebellion of the first Adam, but but covered in the obedience of of the last Adam, that we might become what we were created to be, what we yearn to be. Lord, will you light us up with that hope? Will you uh, give us the boldness of that faith? Will you help us, Lord, to overcome the besetting fears of this culture and of this age? Would you help us, Lord, to fall in love with the light in such a way that it exposes these dark motivations of self-protection, self-glory, self-love that would enslave us and ensnare us and keep us chained in the darkness? Lord, set us free in ways only you can. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his love. Let us taste more deeply of that love that we might be transformed. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.